Hey guys, welcome back to our podcast, The Missing Bridge in America, where two college students speak about political and social issues to help rebuild the missing bridge that unites us politically. Now, today is unlike any other ordinary episode because it's not just Gannon and I. We do have a special guest. However, before I mention his name, I just want to tell you a bit more about who that guest is, right? First of all, we're going to be talking about constitutional amendments with this guest. So this guest in particular, he studies at Florida International University. He majors in criminal justice, and he's also having a pre-law certificate as well. Not only that, but he's also the co-coordinator of outreach for the Marty UN team and FIU, their annual high school conference. He has also interned in two law firms for immigration and personal injury. And he also has aspirations to go to law school. And he can mention a bit more about that. However, just to get some insight on how we met him. So Gen and I tried out in the Model UN team in Florida International University. And that's essentially where we met Michael. That's where we connected. And we have preserved that connection up to this point. And he is very dedicated in what he does. And he is very much a person who can talk about the Constitution. He's read many books. He researches this stuff. He studies it as well. And he wants to be a lawyer as well. So he definitely has a lot of insight on that. However, before I, let's, I introduce him, Gannon, do you have anything to say before we introduce him? Yeah. So just like our previous guest, this man is a very close friend of mine. Um, very, like very close. If there was a trio, this would be it. Me, Brian, and this individual. So without further ado, I'm introducing our second guest to the Missing Bridge of America, Michael Lopez. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for allowing me to be here as a guest today. Uh, it is truly a pleasure and honor. I've been listening to every single one of your episodes since day one, and it truly honors me to be able to contribute from my perspective to this wonderful creation that you guys have been able to uh, put into action. Awesome, awesome. Now, before we get into the episode, how about you talk a little bit more about yourself, kind of like your aspirations for the future, just so people get to know you more and something that we just haven't mentioned in the intro, just to expand on yourself for a bit. Yeah, of course. So thank you. Uh, well, I actually want to go to law school, like you mentioned, and I want to focus on two specific fields of law, intellectual property law and criminal law. And then the reason why I want to do this is because I want to actually um, work as, as a state prosecutor uh, in order to build career and, and litigation experience, which will help me out in the future in the political stage. While also in the intellectual in the intellectual property area, there's a lot of business there. Um, it's, I mean, it's a big, it's a new field, and uh, it's there's a lot of networking and investment opportunities there as well. Awesome! You definitely are getting a lot of experience in that area, so. I can see a bright future for you in that area. So it's very good that you have high aspirations for your career. However, just to get straight into the episode, today we're going to be talking about U.S. constitutional amendments and some contentious topics that have been occurring in the present day in the United States, right? However, the ones that we want to focus on in this episode is the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. So before we get into the discussion, for some of you guys watching, you may not know these amendments right off the top of your head. So I'm just going to mention them briefly, just so we can start off the discussion. Um, so pretty much the First Amendment 
guarantees the right to freedom of speech, press, and religion. It protects the right to position the government. So there's essentially the, the right to assembly and the right to protest. And also the Second Amendment, I'm actually going to quote it exactly. You, you will understand that in, once we're discussing it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So this essentially guarantees the people's right to own and bear arms for their own defense. So now for the Fifth Amendment, it guarantees the right of grand jury trial, protects from double jeopardy, protects against civil incrimination, guarantees the due process of any crime, as well as fair compensation for the taking of private property for public use in eminent domain. And the Sixth Amendment guarantees fair and speedy jury trial and the rights to know the accusation, the accuser and the prosecution's witness, and to find counsel and witnesses. And lastly, the last amendment we will be talking about is the 14th Amendment. And we're not going to be focusing on the entire amendment, but the due process clause in specific, which essentially states that no citizen shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. So with that being said, let's just get straight into the discussion. So the first one that we want to be talking about is the First Amendment. Now, when it comes to the First Amendment, it can be very contentious. And there are a lot of modern day situations that we have faced that have brought up a lot of debate between two sides of the party. So the first one we want to talk about is the freedom of assembly, because essentially, as, as we have seen with the Black Lives Matter protest, there has been sort of some contention whether the government should allow the BLM protest to continue or whether they should focus on prioritizing the health of the citizens and not allowing them to protest. And I know that has been a very contentious issue in the United States. However, I wanted to ask you, Michael, what are your thoughts on the First Amendment, specifically the freedom of assembly when it comes to the BLM protest and their public safety? Right. So thank you so much. So in regards to the freedom of assembly, the U.S. Constitution says that Congress can pass any laws, uh, quote unquote, abridging the right of the people to uh, peacefully to assemble to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, this, in essence, guarantees that the citizens of this country can protest peacefully for grievances against unfair government actions. In this case, the BLM organization organized a wealth of protests around the nation against police brutality and alleged de jure discrimination in the system against minorities, specifically African-Americans. With re, uh, within reason, they have the right to protest peacefully. Unfortunately, some protests have turned into riots in cities such as Seattle and Minneapolis, where private and public property have been destroyed and defaced. This, however, is not constitutional because it surpasses the peaceful condition of the, of the peaceful protest defense. Yet the other peaceful protests are fully protected. Uh, this, however, does not excuse the state and National Guard from shooting tear gas and rubber bullets in protests that are, in fact, peaceful, despite the federal government's enactment of the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878, which allows the federal government to send the National Guard in cases of insurgencies, mass violence, and attack of federal property. Even taking this into consideration, some have argued to just outright ban the protests, not because of the rare, con uh, rare cases of violence, yet for the sake of public safety given our current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, in fact, Dr. Fauci and other medical experts have mentioned that mass public gatherings can become epicenters for mass spreading of infections, according to an LA Times article from June 30th. This has caused a constitutional debate of whether case law, as seen in uh, cases such as Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905 and Marshall versus United States 
1974 should be upheld given rights that the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to ban public gatherings in both cases for the sake of public safety, or if the sole right of assembly should be enforced notwithstanding legal precedence. Uh, stated before, the answer to this debate should be to limit the number of people, in my personal opinion, within the protest groups, maybe dividing them into sections of a specific amount being led by the leaders of the protest. This, of course, Im implies a cooperation of the leaders to follow CDC guidelines, uh, CDC guidelines prohibiting anyone to partake if they aren't uh, social distancing nor wearing a mask. Furthermore, I believe that it would be better for the movement if the BLM leaders imply even if it has to be forcefully, the participation of rioting and uh, looting of members of their protesters, which has been seen many times over, yet not praised by the organization's leadership. In regards to the police, they must maintain the peace, only using extreme measures if the protest becomes violent. Otherwise, they should be held accountable for any aggressive measures undertaking the, during these uh, peaceful protests because any other type of stop, uh, stoppage would be highly unconstitutional from their part. Overall, I think that you hit a lot of great points, including the coronavirus and how we, we may implement better measures to combat the virus or maybe in these protests, maybe prioritize public safety a bit more. In regards to that point, I was actually reading an article about it because I was curious to see what the experts have to say about this and what they believe uh, is best for the Black Lives Matter movement and their protests, right? So this, this guy, Emerson Sykes, he wrote an article. He's essentially the state attorney for American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. And in this pandemic, he pretty much said that you have to wear a mask when you are doing these these protests because any droplet containing coronavirus can easily enter your body if someone sneezes on you if someone spits which usually in these protests people are very close together and they pretty much have no have no room to, to so, social distance right so i think i think that the best we can say is that if you're going to exercise your right to protest you probably should consider the risk factors and there definitely is to say that there can probably be more regulation or maybe there can be better measures taken in terms of the protests to ensure that the public safety of people are prioritized. But it, it, I think it will always be a risk because regardless with protests, I was even reading another article. It says that the right isn't limitless. So exercising it care carelessly could lead to injuries and it could even lead to arrests, as you were saying. So not even with the coronavirus, there's definitely a risk you can take when doing protests. You have to know your right. You have to know what you can and cannot do. And there are even some people who get arrested for just the sake of civil disobedience. They intentionally do it. But there are definitely many risks to protest. And I think that coronavirus presents another risk. But it doesn't take away the fact that, as you said, you can, you can get arrested if you are looting a building, if you are violating private property, if you are destroying private property, or if you are just conducting any violent acts, the police in that aspect is no longer protecting your right. They, can, they have the right to arrest you for a crime that you conducted, right? So I agree with you on that aspect. And I know, I don't know if Gannon wanted to add anything be, before we move on. Yeah, and you two made some very solid points in terms of talking about the assembly part, because that is within our constitution, right? Within the first amendment, because although it is freedom of speech, there is a lot more to it as well. Um, and the second 
aspect to the First Amendment is the religious aspect. So, I mean, we have been talking about this in the past a uh, couple weeks, actually, about this because of the coronavirus. And specifically, this is toward religion. And I think it would be best if we if we had Michael talk about this, because this is something that he, I know, has been very passionate about in terms of our discussions that we've had. But also, this has been something that we have been able to uh, have very good passionate discussions about because this is important and in order to preserve the right to freedom of religion it is very important in this country so uh, well thank you very much so in regards to freedom of religion the u.s constitution actually states that congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof now this is separated by constitutional scholars into two separate uh clauses, the, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The one that is actually incurring this course is a Free Exercise Clause. Uh, to give you an example, recently in California, Governor Newsom has called for the complete shutdown of churches, mosques, and even Jewish temples, telling his citizens to practice within the confines of their homes. This is not the only state that has actually done this. Uh, for instance, Louisiana, Colorado, and Missouri have also partaken into this practice, according to the New a New York Times article from July 8th. While reasonable in the extent of protecting the public, as one side of the debate has actually argued, others have felt blatantly offended as it is a clear violation of the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution. Now, according to the, to the New York Law Journal, uh, around 40 lawsuits have been filed uh, across the nation by churches arguing that this is unconstitutional and the churches must be allowed to open, using the grounds of the foundational principle of separation of church and state set by Thomas Jefferson as well as state violation of the free exercise clause. Two cases, including the US, uh, in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, have actually allowed only drive-in worship services to uh, be put forth, with even some judges also in the Sixth Circuit deciding in another case that in-person worship services would be allowed if, um, if within social distancing. Five other courts uh, have ruled similarly, in, including in courts within the Fifth Circuit. Now, some, however, argue for the sake of public safety that public worship should be either limited or outright banned until further notice. In cases of the Catholic Church, the Archdiocese of Miami has actually enforced social distancing and the wearing of masks throughout mass, as well as the measuring of temperature when you walk in and the offering of hand sanitizer. This has actually led a lot of other churches and archdioceses to follow their example, been applauded by both sides of the aisle. Arguably, the answer to this debate should be the safe practice of the gatherings and said religious institutions must follow CDC guidelines and regulations in order to prevent the spread of the virus. And personally, the outright overriding of the decisions made by the governor of California and other states in order to remove the unconstitutional stigma within the violations of the free exercise clause. Very interesting points you make there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the most contentious issue or the the most popular one has been the one in California where Governor Newsom, as you were saying, he pretty much banned singing in the worship centers and churches and all of that kind of stuff. And before that, there was also lockdowns and the churches were locked down. But back then, there was no guidelines to social distance. There was no guidelines to wear masks. So in that case, it was essentially justified to an extent, right? But then when you start saying like, you you can't you can't be singing in church or you you can't even go to church when a lot many businesses are already opening up. That's that's a different story. And I think that just to add on on what you said, I think that one major criticism that people had 
is that Newsom, the governor Newsom, he was kind of like nitpicking the rights that he was supporting. That's how it felt because he was very much in support of the Black Lives Matter protests, according to an LA Times article I was reading. And then three churches were kind of criticizing him for it because he's protecting the freedom of the protesters of the BLM movement, right? But he, he wasn't protecting the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion in those churches to be able to sing and to be able to gather in a social distancing manner. And there's, there have been some churches that have filed lawsuits, not only because of the singing, but also because of the guidelines as well. It was this church, which was, I, I, it was surprising to me because in an Associated Press article I was reading, this organization, this religious organization, filed a lawsuit in the California Sup Superior Court against Newsom to prevent COVID regulations against Grace Community Church in LA. So there have been lawsuits, not only for the singing bands, but also the guidelines as well, which I think it might be a bit much because essentially you do want to be safe. And I think that the social distancing, as you were saying, that has already been had, uh, exercised in Miami and the, the mask wearing and all that, it's been efficient to prevent the spread of it. And I just think that singing was probably the most contentious topic in terms of freedom of religion. But I know that Gannon wanted to mention something before we transition. Yeah, so with what Governor Newsom is doing in California, it is very shocking, and it is that is a very solid question on whether or not it is violating the First Amendment. Um, and it could be interpreted either way, to be honest with you. But regardless of that, I think one of the most important things of what the First Amendment protects is religion, as I previously mentioned. But what everyone sees as the most important is freedom of speech. Now, there has been the most controversies with this in terms of who gets to say what, is there really an extension to it? Am I really allowed to say what I want? But then there are some limits. So I know for one that President Trump had said something on Twitter not too long ago, and then it got deleted. And then he tried to go after them. But apparently there were some congressional, constitutional, there were some violations of the constitution that he was implementing supposedly. So I just kind of wanted to see, Michael, what your input and your thoughts were on that, because I know that this is probably one of the most important issues in terms of the First Amendment. Right. So arguably, the freedom of speech clause of the First Amendment is one of the most important um, out of the First Amendment, given that without it, the other ones wouldn't even be, uh, wouldn't even exist. So in the Constitution, it is stated that the government can pass laws prohibiting the freedom of speech, and yet it speaks nothing about private organizations prohibiting speech. Like you mentioned, in these current days, most social media outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, have been in trouble facing backlash from both sides of the aisle, as they have resorted to either flag posts, especially if they are opinions, as, as not true, sometimes going to the extent of outright banning the users for a while due to their business policy violations against misinformation. Some famous examples have been not only the president of the United States, Donald Trump, but as well as his son, Donald Trump Jr. The, uh, the former has faced fake news warning labels under his tweets, while the latter has been outright banned from Twitter for 12 hours due to him having allegedly broken misinformation rules in regards to videos of doctors talking about the potential benefits of hydroxychloroquine, according to a July 28 BBC article. Twitter argued that they had <clears throat> that they have taking these measures in order to stop the spread of information that has not been sufficiently backed up by data and research, which applies to hydroxychloroquine. 
as the medication has had no set research in regards to its benefits against uh, preventing COVID-19, just received it has just received the vouching of some doctors throughout the world. As this is happening, the question arises of whether this practice is, is unconstitutional, as it, as it clearly violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment, or do private institutions have a level of leniency to ban posts regarded as misinformation? Since this practice has happened to predominantly Republican leadership, the Republican Party has brought numerous legal complaints and threats against Twitter and other social media, claiming that Democrats do the same thing yet are not punished. Going to the extent of claiming, as said by Cassie Smedio, the Republican National Committee Deputy Communications Director, in an August 8 Fox News article that, quote, I think the American people generally are very worried about these social media entities subjectively determining what is and isn't a message that people can see, end quote, accusing social, uh, social media platforms of essentially censoring. There have been cases in the past protecting private institutions from disallowing speech that is not in agreement with their policies, such as Trustees of Philadelphia Baptist uh, Association versus Hearts Executors in 1819, as well as other protecting businesses, yet putting limitations to such protections in order to prevent outright censorship, as seen in Ivanias versus Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation Board in 1994, with legal presidents protecting both arguments. It would be a difficult decision for a judge to decide what side to rule under, yet I believe that while social media outlets should be on the lookout for potential misinformation, the FCC must keep a watchful eye on how and to whom they do this, as well as any illegal or unconstitutional patterns that may lead to further division in the country, uh, making sure that people, regardless of their ideas, are held accountable, especially both sides of the aisle and not just one. That's a very interesting point you make. Um, when it comes to censorship and, and all that stuff that's, that's been going on with social media companies and whether they are violating free speech, and you can, you can definitely make the argument that they are violating free speech. But the problem is, as you were saying, is that, well, unlike the other amendments we were talking about, it's essentially the government versus the state or versus the people. I mean, so freedom of assembly was essentially the government versus the protesters, like whether they will allow them to protest or they pass a legislation that doesn't allow them to protest or the freedom of religion, where it was essentially Governor Newsom versus the people of the church. Right. But this is much different because it's no longer the government. It's a company. It's a private institution independent of the government. So as you were saying, does there have um, some sort of leniency in terms of that, can the government intervene necessarily if they are violating free speech, right? And I was going to say that Trump actually implemented a, an executive order for preventing online censorship in May 28th, which he made the argument of, you know, any anyone could make the argument, but he made the argument that the freedom to express and debate ideas is the foundation for all of our rights as free people. And he does have a point when he says that. But can he necessarily regulate those businesses in particular because they are privately run? And if they do violate free speech, can can the government necessarily do something about it? Right. So when talking about this, I also wanted to say like you were talking about misinformation. So what about information that is inaccurate? What about information that has been false? And I'm all for that. Because if there's a media outlet or if there's something that isn't necessarily true or isn't necessarily an accurate statement, right? 
I guess maybe the company has some sort of justification to intervene. However, do they take advantage of it? Do they take it to an extreme where they essentially start to violate the free speech that it may speak of, right? So it's essentially this whole this whole battle, if you will, where it's like, what is misinformation and what is you just censoring people or canceling people for their ideas, right? So I don't know if Ganon wants something to add to that because it's a very interesting topic. Yeah, um, definitely. It definitely is interesting. And I know this is one of the very rights that Americans, I'm not going to say take for granted, but they preserve it. So it's definitely very interesting. And I know that there are a lot of questions in terms of what laws governors and state legislators and congressmen and presidents pass that are like, is this infringing upon my freedom of speech? Well, that's, those are constitutional questions that must be asked. So it's very important that, again, those questions are asked. So that covers our First Amendment process, right? The Second Amendment, arguably the most controversial amendment in the Constitution of the United States, where essentially, if you're an American, you know this, that every American has the right of the people to keep and bear arms, which shall not be infringed by the government. But there are two sides to the coin here, right? There are the Democrats who support increasing regulations related to gun ownership, and of course, the Republicans who advocate for gun rights and support decreasing regulations related to gun ownership. So I just kind of wanted to throw some statistics real quick before Michael can kick off this question. So the American people in this country take their Second Amendment right very passionately, as 35 to 42 percent of households in this country have at least one gun. People care about their guns. People care about self-defense. So that's all I can say in this country. For being born on the ideals of liberty and self-defense, they, Americans to this day still care about it. And the U.S. across countries around the entire world has the highest estimated number of guns per capita at 120 and a half point guns for every 100 people. So that's still a very big statistic right there. So, Michael, as I said, liberals and conservatives to this day and for the past few decades, centuries even, have continued to quarrel, if you will, over whether or not people should have regulations or no regulations on gun ownership. So what has been the clash specifically between gun control policies and Second Amendment supporters? Right. So this is arguably one of the most contentious uh, amendments out of the entire 27 because of recent events uh, in regards to school shootings and even more that I will actually address later. Uh, but in this, actually in the second clause of the second amendment, it states that the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now this means that American citizens are allowed to buy weapons that will allow them to protect not only their person and their family, but as well as their constitutional rights against a potential totalitarian state. Uh, now, according to a 2009 Pew Research Center study, it found that 60% of Americans believe that gun laws in this nation should be stricter. But what does strict mean? Does it mean to prevent people from having guns, or does it mean to make it harder for certain people to acquire them? In some extreme cases, it's the former. In some cases, it's the latter. Gun control, while a contentious topic, has certain compromises from, number one, guns and the Second Amendment are important for public safety, to, number two, more thorough background checks, especially in regards to medical and psychological reports, are essential to protect the public. These limitations are completely constitutional, as no single amendment is absolute. 
uh, seen actually in cases such as United States versus Castleman in 2014 and Wazin versus United States in 2016, which established federal limitations towards the access granted to convicted criminals in felony and misdemeanor cases due to their criminal past. Such precedence has led to more thorough criminal background checks around the nation, yet comprehensive medical and psychological background checks have yet to be applied nationwide. With the increased occurrence of shootings in not only schools, such as like in Parkland in Florida, and religious institutions such as the Tree Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018, the nation has seen an increase in the demand to prevent guns from getting into the hands of those with registered mental illnesses, some going to the extent of actually wanting to forcefully take away guns, and some, such as former Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke, promising to, quote, take your AR-15 as well as making claims about government buybacks of firearms, according to a 2009 NPR article. While the former stance about limiting guns from arriving to the hands of registerly mentally ill patients is constitutional for the sake of public safety, the latter about buybacks or forceful taking of guns is highly unconstitutional and would probably ensue chaos. Overreaching Supreme Court cases protecting the Second Amendment bear arms clause, which is uh, the section two that I mentioned, such as D.C. versus Heller in 2008, and even going back to us to Presser versus Illinois in 1886. In general, the best course of action for the government should be to administer safe and efficient background checks that overarch criminal, medical, and psychological background checks in order to truly maintain a constitutional stance as well as to ensure public safety. Very interesting how you mentioned, uh, you emphasized the background checks and how they've at least been able to grow throughout the years because we don't want guns to be in the wrong hands, essentially, because that's essentially what leads to crime. That's what leads to the school shootings. That's what leads to all these kind of things that happen in the United States, at least very, very re recently that has been happening, uh, more prevalent at this time. However, one thing I wanted to mention about the background checks is I was reading, I was reading about it in, a, in an article, and there's this, it's about this Grifford Law Center and they, they did some research about it and how effective the background checks has been to prevent the, as I was saying, the guns to be obtained from the wrong people, essentially the felons, the criminals, the inmates, right? So when the federal background check requirement was made in 1994, from that point, over 3 million people who were prohibited from possessing guns did not obtain them as a result. And out of those people, those 3 million people, 35% of them were convicted felons. So essentially, this did help to prevent the guns from getting to the wrong people. However, you may ask, maybe, how come it's still happening? How come it's still going on? All that kind of stuff. In another statistics, they said was that 80% of all firearms used for criminal purposes are obtained through unlicensed sellers, right? So you can make the argument that there has been some illegalities in terms of the gun selling and gun distribution. However, that honestly goes into the black market and it goes very much unnoticed, right? And even another statistic said that 96% of inmates of convicted gun offenses got it illegally. 96% of them. 96% of the people who were convicted of gun offenses got it illegally. I wanted to emphasize that. Because a lot of people say, oh, stricter background checks. Oh, yes, yeah, stricter, stricter. We need to get stricter every year, right? And I think that we've essentially, it's not to say that in the past we were weak on background checks, or at least we couldn't have been stronger. Because I think that, as you were saying, in 2016, there was 
more stricter background checks and little by little we're able to prevent the arms to be obtained by the wrong people as you were saying but it's not to say that it will be perfect right and i think that something that at least people on the democratic side have been saying they've gone from stricter background checks to now as you were saying Beto Rook he's a bit of a, a passionate about this topic where he just wants to ban assault weapons right so the debate i feel like it has shifted from background checks to now whether we should ban guns where you were saying that it can create a lot of constitutional battles and it, a lot of court cases will be brought up because that's essentially unconstitutional as it stands right so i have a question for you but uh, i think Gannon wanted to ask something before we get into that so yeah so i just wanted to briefly mention brian that you, you had some good points michael you had really good points too and as brian was saying you know beto work in 2000 the 2020 primaries was saying oh i want to completely take the assault rifles away he isn't the only democrat to have done so your current democratic running mate Kamala Harris also wants to ban assault weapons, among other Democrats. Elizabeth Warren wants to do the same. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to do the same. So there are a lot of Democrats who think very alike in terms of the Second Amendment and what should be done about it. One international shooting that comes to mind, that was the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand from March of last year. Now, New Zealand has very, very strict background checks in terms of who gets to own a gun and whatnot and the government is very strict on who again is able to have a gun so the fact that a mass shooting was able to carry out there last year was quite bizarre to them and i'm sure that they didn't see it coming but you know mass shootings over the last couple years have been something that we've all seen that's way too common um so i just wanted to briefly mention that before brian asks this follow-up question very interesting point i'm sure Michael, you can you can kind of respond to what Gannon said. But also another question I had, just to kind of get your opinion a bit further on this gun control topic, the Second Amendment topic, is that when it comes to the Democratic Party, as we were talking about, there are those people who do want stricter background checks. There are all those people who do just want more gun control regulation. And it's unfair to say that everyone wants to ban assault weapons or everyone wants to ban guns, right? However, what are your thoughts about those people who essentially ban guns, those people who are for that completely. I I just want you to expand on it a bit more because I want to know what you think will happen if that ever comes to pass and what kind of constitutional battles or obstacles it can face when implementing. Because as I said, background checks have been implemented. They have been stricter. Right. But when it comes to banning assault weapons, it's a whole different argument because now it's going against the Constitution. Right. But it has been a more prevalent debate than ever before because of the increase in shootings we've been having and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I personally think that um, candidates that which sadly are um, more predominantly Democrats who agree with the, with these policies to outright just ban uh, assault rifles uh, or assault weapons, as they call it, and some some even go to the extent of just saying, "Oh, we just ban all guns." I think that at least the ban all guns, I feel like that would be the more extreme case. Um, not only is it completely against the Constitution, but as well as the principles that our founding fathers fought for in the American Revolution, as advocates of the Second Amendments, from James Madison to Alexander Hamilton to even John Jay, who are actually the authors of the Federalist Papers. 
uh, who which, uh, from the document that supported the uh, U.S. Constitution, they argued that this was that this uh, amendment was necessary in order to protect ourselves against a totalitarian government, like I mentioned earlier, because at that time colonists lived under an oppressive monarchy in which the soldiers could essentially do which, whatever they wanted, notwithstanding the law, notwithstanding their rights uh, according to the English Bill of Rights. So they could, for instance, quarter inside their houses without their permissions. They could even arrest people just for looking suspicious. Things that uh, were be seen as aggressive, which is why they wanted to ensure that we could uh, protect ourselves in those type of cases. Very good point you make. Thanks for expanding on that. It clarifies a few things. And in terms of the whole militia thing, uh, the whole, I guess, military depotism, right? The whole reason why, I guess, the Second Amendment was created. A lot of people have argued that the NRA has kind of changed the definition and that they no longer focus on the militia, that they no longer focus on that aspect to it. And they have changed it to the right to bear arms and all that kind of stuff, right? However, it, it essentially is not that we are only doing it for military despotism, but it also has other constitutional liberties for, for U.S. citizens that it's not just only for the cases of tyranny or military takeover for, for a government, but it's essentially to protect yourself. And we saw that in the D.C. versus Heller case where the, the D.C. wanted to, to ban handguns in, in Washington, D.C., Right. However, the court didn't rule that as constitutional because they deemed the Second Amendment to protect an individual's right to possess fi a firearm for self-defense, completely unconnected from malicious service. Right. And of course, this debate will continue. This gun control debate will continue over time. Time will tell to just see whether there will ever be a time where it is actually necessary to ban guns. But as of this point, as you were saying, it doesn't seem like the best solution at this point. Um, however, I know Gannon wants to ask something. Yeah, so this is, um, I was actually having this conversation today with my grandfather in terms of the Second Amendment. And he told me, he's like, there are a lot of amendments in the Constitution that were written for one reason or another. So the Second Amendment was to protect the families of those and also the frontiersmen because that was a big issue back in the 1700s. But he says the debate today revolves around the fact is if the amendment is still relevant, whether or not if there needs to be changes or whether or not it needs to remain the same. And that's been a lot of the constitutional questions in terms of not just the Second Amendment, but other amendments as well. So I just wanted to briefly mention that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, just to kind of wrap it up a bit before we move on to the next topic is that when it comes to the second amendment, there are still things that have been going on, like the debates and all that. And I think that the Republicans have sort of stood upon the fact that all Americans should have guns, or maybe at least the, the, the far right has been the right to bear arms and our constitutional liberty and everyone should have guns. Right. But then the Democrats are a bit more like, okay, we need some more stricter background checks. We need a bit more, uh, regulation when it comes to this. And then there's sort of the extreme people who want to ban guns overall, right? So essentially, just to kind of move on from this topic to kind of move on to our last point that we wanted to mention about the constitutional amendments is the 6th and 14th Amendment, which 
essentially focus on due process in the United States. And we're pretty much what we had mentioned earlier, which is just guarantees a fair and speedy jury trial and the rights to know the accusation, the accuser, the prosecution's witness, and to find counsel and witness. So that essentially is what we want to ask you, Michael, essentially when it comes to these amendments, what have been some violations that you have seen in terms of due process in our current criminal justice system and just in our modern day society? Right. So in regards to the 6th and 14th Amendment, uh, just to give a little summary, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution states that, quote, nor, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This alongside with the 5th Amendment, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law are the two due process clauses that define the rights of the individual who is charged with a crime. However, due process is only enforced by the actual trial procedure secured under the Sixth Amendment, which in brief protects and ensures the right to a speedy and public trial, the right to compel and confront witnesses, and the right to a competent attorney, like you guys mentioned previously. Unfortunately, in current events, we have seen uh, such due process violations being done because of the lack of enforcement of the Sixth Amendment. To put into perspective, we must go back to the BLM movement and the recent protests. Like mentioned earlier, there have been two types of protests within the movement, those that have been peaceful, which are the majority, and those that have been violent, which are in the minority. The latter has seen no violation of these rights, given that whenever the police officers have apprehended someone is because of actual probable cause from charges of vandalization of private property to theft. However, there have been a plethora of cases in peaceful protests where undercover police officers, as well as officers in plain view, have taken peaceful protesters into custody without just cause. These in itself are complete violations of not only police procedure in our adversarial justice system, which mandates there to be probable cause for, an, for the arrest of an individual in order for the government to satisfy the burdens of production and persuasion in trial, since, after all, all defendants, whether guilty or innocent, are assumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But it is, as well, a habeas corpus violation, which is protected indirectly via the amendments I mentioned before. Now, habeas corpus is the right of the individual to be told the charges for which they are being apprehended upon. In Gersing versus Pew, 1975, it was established that the police may hold an individual under custody for 48 hours without officially charging them. Afterwards, they must either be let go or a Gerstein hearing must occur, which is essentially an initial appearance under a trial court in which the officer must persuade the judge that they, are, that they had probable cause for arrest. Now, why am I explaining these confusing legal procedures to you? <laughs> well, because they aren't being followed. In most of these cases, the police officers have arrested the individuals without probable cause. And although they have let them go within 48 hours, they have created a trend of ignoring habeas corpus. Like in all constitutional cases, there are two houses of thought in this. So there are those that justify the arrest, saying that it was for the sake of public safety, and even go as far as to say that since the president has sent the National Guard to some cities, that habeas corpus has been unofficially waived because of the president's power to do so under Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2, which actually states that, quote, the privilege of the writs of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it, end quote which historically has only happened once in American history under President Lincoln during the Civil War. The other house of thought uh, 
says not only that habeas corpus has not been waived because the president has not directly said as much, but that since these events are under peaceful and not violent protests, that habeas corpus has seen has been violated, creating a slippery slope of first, fifth, sixth, and fourteenth amendment violations, all in one little box. I would I would argue that these issues would be resolved if the police officers were strictly told by their superiors to stick to the law, and of course their instincts, their instincts, yet to be mindful of their actions because their actions may become unconstitutional and may lead to severe civil and criminal repercussions for them if accountability is informed is enforced. However, if we are to resolve these complications, we need to resolve the actual lack of enforcement of the Sixth Amendment whose uh, problem is constituted in what in the criminal justice world is called the triangular criminal justice system, as well as cases of restorative justice. The former constitutes an, an issue that spans nationwide, where there's a sort of quid pro quo between the three court players, the judge, the prosecution, and the defense attorney. Now, what do I mean by quid pro quo? Given that the public defender's office, as well as the prosecutor's office, tends to have little to no resources to try all the thousands of cases they handle each year, they resort to two things. One, plea bargaining, which is where the defendant, if they plead guilty, they will see a lesser sentence. Or two, they drop the charges completely if the defendant is a first-time offender or they think that it, there is no sufficient evidence to turn that case into a conviction. And these things are enabled by the necessity of judges to go through all the, all the array of cases that they handle in a day, not even taking into consideration the thousands of cases a year they try as well as the compliance of private defense attorneys who go straight into plea bargaining in order to focus on higher profile cases. This sort of collusion between the officers of the court is something that must be changed by either allocating more funds into these offices, which will erase the necessity of the practice, or by holding those who practice it accountable. The latter is a more, is, is a more new litigation practice. By latter, I mean the, um, the restorative justice, in which and where they defend his or her attorney, the prosecution uh, with either the victim or the victim's family and the judge sit in a room and they hear the defendant's side of the story. And, of the, and if the family feels as if the defendant is either A, innocent, B, regretful of his actions, or C, has learned his or her lesson, they will tend to drop the charges and save the court money and resources that are essentially exhausted in a trial. Now, these practices are argued as violations of the Sixth Amendment because they disallow the actual litigation process of a defendant being able to compel and confront his or her witnesses, protected under the compulsory and confrontation clauses. But it as well disallows the practice of a trial by jury of his or her own peers in exchange for a merely speedy trial. This, of course, must be changed because, as, prior, as mentioned prior, if the Sixth Amendment is not enforced, then the Fourteenth and Fifth Amendments due process clauses which in essence un, um, will be in essence unenforceable and obsolete. And quite frankly, the only way to do this is by funding the DAs and public defender's office, as well as the clerk of the, uh, clerk of the courts who handle the vast majority of the paperwork and more importantly, the judge and his or her staff, which includes a bailiff, court stenographer and more, and more without, because without this, the criminal justice system will merely continue to disintegrate. Honestly, I, I think that very interesting uh the what you were explaining because personally i don't usually hear about this a lot but i think that everything you're saying you do have a point when it comes to the due process violations whether it be that they cancel the trial because they want to move on to a greater trial to a larger trial or whether they want to or whether the police is just unjustifiably arresting someone without habeas corpus without telling them why they arrested and all that kind of stuff 
I think that it's it's a very interesting topic to speak about. However, I wanted to ask you something, right? You say some some ideas, some I guess ways that we can better enforce this, whether it be accountability with the police, whether I think you mentioned something about 48 hours before they charge someone or whether that has already been implemented or whether we need to implement it. Some other things that you were mentioning, some ways that we can enforce it, whether we can provide more money to the clerk of the courts and some other organizations, some other departments that can help better enforce this and better keep the police and the courts and the criminal justice system more accountable for their actions to protect the Sixth Amendment, to protect a citizen from their Sixth Amendment, their Fourteenth Amendment, and to an extent, their Fifth Amendment. But I did want to ask you, I think that there has been another obstacle to this when it comes to police officers and and people in the criminal justice system specifically, right? Uh, you were mentioning a lot of ways that we can better enforce it. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of points to make. However, I think an obstacle would be qualified immunity. This doctrine that, that shields government officials or police or other people who work for the government from being held personally liable for constitutional violations such as the Sixth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment as well, right? So this kind of gives a, a leeway to police officers who may violate the constitutional uh, rights of the citizen in, if they have a valid point or if they have a valid reason. And sometimes this can be loopholes for something that was completely unjustified to be justified in cases of anything, uh, malpractice by the police, malpractice by the justice system, right, as you were talking about. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on it, because that could be a major obstacle to sort of providing people with these rights or better enforcing them, the rights that they have in their 6th and 14th Amendment. Right. Uh, well, I, I honestly think that when it comes to qualified immunity, that is a very tricky issue because the whole purpose was it uh, was for in order to protect police officers who were actually falsely uh, falsely accused of excessive force to prevent from the hassle of going into civil court and having to deal with uh, with punitive and compensatory damages, which and litigation, which is just uh, it, it's very messy process. But honestly, I personally agree that I, I honestly think that uh, qualified immunity should be limited in a in a, in a, a specific perspective. I've always I've always believed that police officers, especially those that, because you know there's always bad apples in, in a specific group, um, they that those that actually commit violations of either the constitution or criminal law, they should be uh, taken into court and held accountable for their actions. So I've always been a big proponent of creating a specific uh, subject matter jurisdiction court system that will hold police officers accountable for their actions in a local and state level and even a federal level for federal officers. Uh, kind of like a court martial system in the, in, the US mili- in the U.S. Army, kind of like in that kind of perspective, um, in that kind of way. So I honestly think that this, I believe, would be the best manner to take in these kind of situations into accountability without there being too much of a of a court and legal mess to um, to put it in into words thank thanks for elaborating on that because that's that's always been something I've thought about and something kind of concerning or something I haven't made up my mind on but as you said there's definitely certain cases that qualified immunity is definitely necessary so that certain people who accuse a police officer of wrongdoing when there was actually no justification or there was no evidence of that sort it essentially protects government officials, protects the police, protects people who work for the government 
in in all these cases. And as you say, there could probably be some limitations to be placed so that it can be better enforced and be better tried, if you will. However, I think that we've we've covered most of what we want to talk about. And I want to say that all in all, with all talking about all these amendments, talking about whether they have been violated, whether we have done anything to help better enforce these amendments, these constitutional rights that U.S. American citizens have here in the United States, right? So I wanted to ask you, what are certain things that people can do? If you can like speak to the audience, if you will, what are certain things that people can do to better inform themselves? Because this is not just any topic. Constitutional amendments isn't just any topic. It involves the citizen directly and it's either attacking their rights or it's a way to better enforce their rights. So what is a way that people can get involved or people can essentially have more information about this so that they themselves be active upon it and understand what their constitutional liberties are? Uh, so some ways to keep yourself informed is by pure independent research. There are actually two books I wanted to suggest to the audience. Uh, one is called The Brilliant Solution by Carol Perkins. And the other one's called The Poor Tip by Joseph J. Ellis, which are excellent perspectives on the Constitution, as well as their historical past. It is also important to keep up with the U.S. Supreme Court and their decisions, uh, which are actually projected on the website. Um, It's www.supremecourt.gov, usually under opinions, and you will see the court cases and the actual written opinions of the Supreme Court justices. I think that it would be great for the audience to better understand these constitutional debates and uh, contentions. Yeah, that's a really a very important in- piece of info that you provided for us. And this is actually a resource that I personally have used as well in case of, uh, in order to look up cases and what people believe are these our Supreme Court justices believe is constitutionally right and constitutionally wrong. Because at least in my opinion, I do believe that although the constitution does guarantee us rights, they can be taken subjectively in terms of specific laws. So if you are questioning whether or not a law or a piece of legislation is violating the constitution, that's, you have to do your own research on that because one person will say that it does and another person will say it doesn't. So it's very important that everyone, especially in terms of if you want to know if a law is violating the constitution in any way, that's where you would have to do research. So, and again, it's subjective to some people and at least to me it is. So that's kind of where I'll leave off here. So. Yeah. And as you guys were saying, there's a lot of ways you can get involved. There's independent research. You can read certain books. You can also read about the constitution inform yourself, understand what your rights are, understand why they were created in order to make sure that you are not taking advantage of in your rights and also keep up with the Supreme court cases and their decisions as Michael was saying, so that you can stay informed and maybe some of the contentions, some of the topics that are, are, are in debate right now. Of course, we mentioned the, I guess the main ones or at least the ones we know most about, but there are a lot more amendments that you can see in the constitution itself you can you can see all the rights and liberties that you have and you can see how contentious these topics have been today in society nowadays that that we see so many issues sparking up so many different cases sparking up where we start to question whether we should keep these rights whether we should better enforce them or whether we should eliminate them as a whole 
right? But with that being said, this was honestly a pleasure, Michael. I definitely learned a lot. You have a lot to bring to the table. We enjoyed this episode. We thank you for being on the show. We thank you for bringing your expertise, bring your research. <laughs> and we know that you have a bright future ahead of you. We know that you, you want to become a lawyer and perhaps get into politics in the future. And we just thank you for being on the show. And if you want to mention anything else um, before we essentially end the episode. Um, no, again, just thank you so much, Gannon and Brian, for inviting me to your podcast. It was truly an honor and privilege. I wish you guys nothing but the best as you continue to grow within this podcast and hopefully one day make it pro. Yeah, th- thank you. Thank you. Um, I, that, that, that can definitely be a, be a goal um, for a podcast. But yeah, we just appreciate you coming here. Our second guest star. So you're one of the very first people experiencing this. Um, so we know that out of all people, you definitely are one of our top people who we wanted to bring on because we know you are very knowledgeable on this topic and you bring a lot to the table. Um, but before we close, I know Gannon wanted to mention something. Yes, I did. So th- I know there are some Michael Lopez stands out there. So if you've never seen our podcast before, we hope you continue to check out our other episodes that we have uploaded and any future episodes that we have. But I also want to mention briefly, we do have an Instagram, at The Missing Bridge. Make sure you go follow that because you will get updates. You will be able to see at first glance when an episode is out. And yeah, uh, more Q&As are going to be in line for the future. Not now because we just finished one, but in, in a few months, we'll say. So yeah, make sure you do that. Again, our Instagram is at The Missing Bridge. And I just wanted to briefly mention that before we close off the episode. Awesome. Awesome. Well, with that being said, we thank you, Michael, for being on the show. We thank you, Gannon, for always being our co-host and bringing uh, a different energy at each episode. But we thank you guys for being on the show. We thank you guys for viewing this episode. And as Gannon said, you have to support us on our Instagram, The Missing Bridge. At The Missing Bridge, you, you got to follow, you got to like our posts, got to keep up with whatever we're posting and all that. Soon we'll be advancing, we'll be going outside of the box to other social media outlets such as Twitter, maybe Facebook. We're still testing the waters, but we're definitely considering that in the near future. But we thank you for viewing this episode. As Michael said, continue to do your research on constitutional amendments and just know what your rights are. So with that being said, we thank you guys for listening to our podcast. We hope you guys have an amazing day.